0: Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's fine. No, it's, <laughs> this is this is this is perfect. Um, Okay, let me see. I gotta do a little more tweaking here. Okay. Yeah, I haven't been to Pender Island there. It's funny, you know, I grew up on the on the Gulf, on the coast on the Gulf Islands. And I've been to maybe eight of them. But they're yeah. each one is its own separate little world and you don't really unless there's something real, I've only, and all of them have been, I've been to Cortez once I've been to Galliana once I've been to, right. Right. Each one of these just one time. And then of course, Hornby where I come from the thousands of times. So uh, it's it's funny. And I think, you know, you'd have the same conversation with people who live in the, on the islands and you'd be like, you know, if you visited that island, you'd be like, why? Like what, what, right. What what has that island got? Like, has it got beaches? Check. Right. Yeah. So, anyway, Uh, all right. Well, we're live. Um, People are are confirming our existence. So the question always asked is, uh, "Who are you? What do you do?"
1: Okay, so uh, I'm Mike Zemkov. Uh, I'm an associate professor at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Uh, I'm in the physics department, physics and astronomy, Um, and my research specialty is. Uh, what we laughingly refer to as experimental cosmology, which means I build experiments to try to understand you build universe universe
0: on the largest scales, right? Um, Yeah, like, like, that's a tough one, right? Experimental cosmology, like, like, how, how can you build universes and experiment on them? That's one of the the downsides (laughs) of astronomy is that you never get a chance to, to run the experiment. Again, we've just got the one we've got. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's too bad. So then what, what does experimental cosmology involve? Well, that's a great question. Um, So it it, it,
1: sort of historically, this term has come about because um, what happened was there was a population of physicists that were working, gosh, in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s that sort of came from like particle physics backgrounds. And then they said, oh, this cosmology thing, all we need to do is sort of learn how to build a telescope and and we can we can ask these very fundamental questions about you know where did the universe come from and how big is it and how old is it and what's in it and all these interesting questions um and so what ended up sort of happening is that that experimental physics sort of fundamental experimental physics cross-pollinated into astrophysics and made this kind of uh, thing that, that I, and, and others, I don't know if it's ubiquitous in the community, but I and others would call experimental cosmology. Sometimes it's called observational cosmology, but it's a little bit different than people who go out and use like Keck, right? right. These big 10 meter telescopes to go study, you know, ancient galaxies. Um, the, the, the stuff I do is a little bit more um, bespoke, we build instruments to answer, you know, one very specific scientific question rather than a big telescope that answers a lot of different questions.
0: Right, right, right. And we'll get into one of these telescope ideas in, in a second. But, but like, what are some examples of some fundamental questions that you're looking to answer?
1: Oh, uh, so, uh, well, so one question I'm interested in at the moment is what's dark matter mm-hmm. um, and so uh, you know just briefly dark matter is is this uh, uh, stuff that doesn't participate in the electromagnetic force that seems to live out sort of between galaxies and forms the skeleton on which the the baryons and you know stuff that participates in the electromagnetic force does sort of live in all the stars and galaxies and whatnot. Um, And the hunt has been on for a very long time trying to figure out, okay, what's the particle equivalent of this? Um, I don't want to go into a big long spiel about dark matter, but the point is that that there's a a flavor of it called axions that I'm particularly interested in trying to see if we can build instruments to go and search for uh, by looking at dwarf galaxies and seeing if they're emitting lines when they shouldn't be stuff like that. Right. Um, Another example is, is inflation, which is this, um, brief but extremely violent uh event that appears to have happened in the early universe where it went from sort of quantum sized to macroscopic sized all of a sudden cosmic sized you know in 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 tiny 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 fraction of a second um that was posited in 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 the early 80s as as a way to explain you know why the universe looks kind of the same in in all the directions we care to look Um, it shouldn't if 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 you know the speed of light has been constant and so on so um that's another case where uh physicists and astronomers are looking really hard to say you know what kind of evidence can we find that this actually happened and can we constrain the physics behind it so we might understand you know what what was the actual underlying physics that caused that to happen which we don't know right now
0: and and so what is the best technique the best methodology to to try to gain some kind of insight into these phenomena, like, like, say, inflation, like, what is a way that an experimental cosmologist attempts to gain some kind of information about the, the, the era of inflation?
1: So, so one way that's um, been been very popular, and and, and people have been trying for a long time now is to look for what are called uh, b modes, b mode polarization in the cosmic microwave background. So Cosmic microwave background is this relic radiation field left over from the Big Bang. Um, and it ends up that it's a little bit polarized. It's a little bit polarized because of how it gets produced. Um, it's, it's what's called Thompson scattering, so photons scattering from electrons. Um, and uh, the linear polarization of that is is relatively straightforward to, to predict and has been observed. Um, but it ends up that that polarization makes sort of specific patterns um, that that look like um, look like sort of rays coming out of a sun, but they don't look like whirlpools. And mm-hmm. this whirlpool thing is called a b-mode polarization, and it's it's awfully hard to make from the kind of physics in the early universe. So, one way that people um, uh, came up with to, to 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 look for inflation is they said, well, inflation. One of the predictions is that gravitational radiation, you know, the stuff that LIGO has been going and observing. Um, that should have been produced in the early universe. And that has the the feature that it can actually make this sort of B-mode whirlpool-y looking polarization um, and imprinted on the CMB in a way that's completely unique. So for a long time, people have been going and trying to measure these little 1% effects in the polarization is very difficult of the cosmic microwave background to see if they can see this distinctive pattern. And, and the search is still on. People haven't definitively found anything yet.
0: Well, some people accidentally announced that they had definitively found something, and then another group of people had uh, suggested that they hold off that announcement until the more information could come out. Um, and uh, and yeah, we as the science communication sort of group went through a lot of sort of back and forth there for a, for a couple of months. Um, But I know there's further efforts in the works now to put a much bigger version of the telescope that was searching for B mode the first time around back in Chile, or maybe even down in Antarctica this time, or with the previous one was in Antarctica now in Chile, maybe. Yes, that's exactly
1: right. So so that field actually I did my PhD in that field, that field has um, gotten it needs bigger and bigger things and bigger and bigger things mean more and more expensive. So now it's now it's really become it's going back to particle physics these days, right? So I kind of I kind of uh, myself hit the eject button on that particular kind of science. But you know, right. I'm doing related things.
0: So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, like, I've, I've had a chance to talk to to Dr. Brian Keating quite a few times about about his work with with that and, and how he lost the Nobel Prize. Um <laughs> It's a, it's an interesting, it's 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 such a fascinating story because it just encapsulates how science works and how yes. and just the whole process and the whole adventure of it. So, um, but okay, so so where you sort of came across my now we talked a couple of years ago, about a a bunch of stuff similar to this, but where you came across my radar, again, was you wrote a fairly fascinating article on the conversation about your proposal of putting a telescope out beyond the orbit of Saturn. And it's funny, because, like, three years, people have always asked me this question, like, Oh, would it make more sense to put a telescope out in the deeper part of the solar system farther away from the from the Earth. And I think their understanding was that then it could then be closer to search for Kuiper Belt objects, like it would be farther from the Earth, but closer to the Kuiper Belt. And I'm like, well, no, I mean, it's like, the, the distances are so vast that it's much makes way more sense to have a telescope close to Earth where you can easily launch it and, and, and work with it and and repair it and so on. And then you came out with this article, and and there had been some other work done with New Horizons that just blew my mind and showed me exactly how wrong I was about this assumption for completely different reason. So so can we go back? Actually, you had you wrote a paper, I think it was back in 2018, suggesting that New Horizons has an opportunity to do something that that no other spacecraft can do. So can you talk about that? Sure. So so um,
1: you know, when people, there's there's sort of a, a common uh, misconception is maybe the wrong word, but a, an idea that that in order to do science, at least, at least in order to do astrophysical science, we need big apertures, big telescopes, right? So, you know, Hubble, then JWST, then Louvoir, whatever comes past that. Um, and the answer is yes, for some things you definitely need that. But also, if you're looking at uh, diffuse brightness, rather the little pinpricks of light, you know, trying to resolve stars or galaxies or whatnot. If you're interested more in like what's the structure of a nebula or whatever um something that's like extended and not not pinpricks um it ends up that you can get away with pretty small apertures and 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 amateur astronomers can tell us this from direct experience in their backyard right like a lot of the most beautiful pictures we get of wide field view shots of the universe are actually people working with like 12 inch telescopes um so you know the prohibitive thing about going to the outer solar system of course is cost right it's super super expensive and so trying to get something that was like 10 meters or even one meter out in the outer solar system you can forget it we don't we don't make that much money in taxes right so um, basically the connection that got made here is I, I come from a background where we're using small telescopes and we're using small telescopes to do niche things understanding diffuse emission of you know galaxies in the universe and, and things like this um and and realizing like holy smokes if if we could just get a 10 centimeter telescope going to the outer solar system we could get out of all the busy stuff that actually kind of makes life really complicated in the inner solar system and get a really clean view of of the universe around us not just kuiper belt objects although perhaps that's one science case but but everything and 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 what it boils down to is that in the inner solar system the planets, the plane of the planets, the plane of the ecliptic is is filled with dust, and this dust is basically asteroids and comets and whatnot grinding themselves down over over you know geological timescales. Um, but it's bright, you know, it's 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 sort of sand grains out there, but they sparkle and they scintillate and they reflect sunlight back. And this is true, you know, not just for a little telescope, but for any telescope. You know, Hubble, the dominant source of photons in a Hubble image is actually the zodiacal light. Locally, uh-huh. it's just that the way they do the processing. You don't care. Um, so our idea is, okay, well, the zodiacal light for what we want to do is a killer. It's too bright and we can't remove it sufficiently well with sufficient, you know, uncertainties that we're happy and, and, and can do our science. So what do you do? Well, one thing you do is you just get away from it. And the easiest way to get away from it is to go out to, you know, Uranus, Pluto, <laughs> Kuiper belt, wherever, right. And, and do your measurements out there. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, you know, the interesting point, though, the nascent, the nascent thought for this was actually um, that planetary scientists send effectively what boil down the telescopes to the outer solar system, not all the time, but pretty often, right? They, they just call them cameras. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this idea of sending stuff to the outer solar system has been around since the 60s. There's a book I have in my bookshelf, really interesting one. From 62 where if you look at it it was way back where you know the van allen belts were brand new like new discovery oh my god there's radiation belts around earth but the the path the roadmap of like here are the interesting questions here is what we don't know about space is completely laid out in gory detail in this book that was from the dawn of the space age it's amazing
0: yeah and
1: And this idea, let's go to the outer solar system and do astronomy and, and probe stuff and understand the interface between the sun's heliosphere and the galaxy and all this, it, it's, it's in that book. You know. Yep. They knew that that yep. was a cool thing to do. So this idea is not new, but the, I think the realization is like, oh, if we could just get the planetary scientists to talk to the astronomers to design something that would work for both of them, we would be getting double our money back. And that was kind of the 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 idea behind this
0: work with new horizons and and so what what does New Horizons have on it that makes this possible so the
1: the camera that New Horizons is carrying that's that's actually good for this is is called Lori. It stands for long range uh, reconnaissance imager. and um it's basically an optical telescope. it's not a it's not a uh, i don't want to you know, Belittle the, the instrument team or anything because they did great work and it's a good camera. But you know, it's a not terribly complex optical telescope. Um, not something perhaps you'd buy off the shelf, but certainly related to that, right?
0: But like, how um, big? Like, I'm just sort of imagining like. Uh, it about,
1: a... it's got a, it's got about a 12 inch aperture. I want to say 30 that's centimeters. Big.
0: Oh yeah, that's yeah, pretty that's big. A, that's a big telescope. I mean, you'd be I'd be yeah, glad yeah. to use for, a 12 for... inch telescope here on Earth.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and you know so they put they put a CCD on the back end and and the was they were going to use this to make maps of Pluto and to do some star findings so they could make sure that that their understanding of the the pointing of the mission was correct and whatnot um, and it ends up that it's it's designed in a way where you can actually hope to do these kind of measurements of what are what's the total light from all the galaxies in the universe just by kind of integrating all the photons you you, you measure um, so, so that was the primary instrument we used. There's a couple other instruments that might be of interest. I've had some undergraduate students kind of look into that over the years. Um, they're more into the infrared. Uh, it ends up they're not, they're just not as sensitive as we would need. They have pretty small apertures. They're more like five centimeters and, and that's getting to
0: be on the not big enough side. So was was this instrument designed with this plan or was this something that was proposed long after the spacecraft was built and and launched? This was this was this was uh, me. Okay, I don't
1: want to sound too self aggrandizing. But basically, when I when I started here at RIT, I was I had a summer that I was doing research during and I thought, you know, what's an interesting data analysis project I could do in a summer? And I thought, oh, I could go look at this Lori data. I knew it existed. And I was like, hi, huh, I wonder if we could do something. So, hmm. you know, fast forward the story a year or something like that. And we we had a result and we published it in in, in Nature and, and it got some press. Um, and I, at that point, the New Horizons team sort of picked up on it and said, "Oh my gosh, goodness! There's a whole science case here that we yeah. kind of didn't even think of." Yeah, and we got nothing um, and else. And they to recently look at. published their result, which yeah. is more and better, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and they had nothing else to look at. I mean, once you've passed Ericoth and after you've passed Pluto, then there's nothing. You don't have anything else to to look at, so you might as well. So, what was the result then? When when and sort of how was the experiment done? Like, how long of an exposure did you do, and what were you looking at, and what was the result?
1: Well, so uh, at that time we were stuck with basically found data. So there was a bunch of data that that the New Horizons team took, um, scattered all over the place, all over the sky, mm-hmm. looking at different targets to try so they could understand things like their their point spread function, so you know how the light gets imaged onto the camera surface, uh, the sensitivity, you know the pointing solution for the spacecraft, all those good things. Um, so you know what we did was kind of sift through the the data that were there and and we decided anything that was like a second long integration so you know you're looking just integrating for a second is probably too short but they had a bunch of 10 second ones in there um and it ended up I, I I'm going to struggle to get the exact number off the top of my head but something like 260 seconds worth of data was enough to get a you know field leading
0: at least at that time measurement of hmm. the optical background and that's incredible that that yep. with pieces of data that was dropped on the floor in between the work that they were doing, with 260 seconds ish, of observation time, you were able to take a picture of the brightness of the of the universe more clearly than has ever been done before.
1: I, I it's, uh it's staggering
0: to me to, to think of
1: that. Actually, yes.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're like, Oh, here, let me just let me just collect all these little scraps uh, sew them together and look at that. The best view we've yeah. ever seen. Um, That's Right. So then how, you know, you said that, that realizing, like if you had gone back and given recommendations to the new horizons team, it, it feels like, like a much more interesting suite of instrument could have been, or Lori could have been adapted or the CCD could have adapted or filters could have been added could have been something done to make this even better
1: absolutely I you know that's 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 kind of the thing that that I've been trying to advocate for over the past five years is if if we just talk to one another in the right ways <laughs> yes, and, and you know planetary teams brought on astrophysicists and perhaps vice versa whatever worked um, we could be getting a lot more bang for our buck scientifically yeah at, at very low you know uh, increases to mission risk and all the things that NASA cares about so you know, I've gone down to NASA headquarters, and I've given talks and banged the drum and said, Hey, guys, we, we should really be talking about this sort of thing, we should be explicitly designing stuff together so that we can do these kind of science cases, because it's
0: really actually not that hard. It just needs it's you need the will to do it. Yeah. All, yeah. Right. So So I guess what was the result? And either, you know, the result that you got, but also the result that the New Horizons team got how bright how, how, what, what did you measure?
1: So, so this is interesting. So we, in the, in the, in our nature article, we had an upper limit where we said it's, it's, it's not more than 20 in these funny units we use um, where the expectation sort of, if you take people go out with Hubble and things like that and they count galaxies, right? They add up all the light from all the galaxies you can see. And, um, the answer at these wavelengths in these funny units that I won't go into is 10. So, um, we we said it's not more than twenty, which was definitely new because before that people there were, there were hardly even measurements out here. They, that was kind mm-hmm. of nonsense. There was just nothing. Um, so we, we said it's not more than twenty, and that that's useful. Um, the reason that this number is interesting in the first place, even is there's a light from galaxies. But is all that all there is? You know what what is the total light emitted by stuff outside of our galaxy, and and the things that might cause extra light are really interesting, right? They're things like, well, what if there's a population, a large population of stars that's getting scattered outside of galaxies? Or mm-hmm. what if dark matter happens to be decaying and it's causing a diffuse background that is very faint but detectable? You know, things of that nature, it's, it's what we call a cosmic consistency test where the question is, are galaxies all there is? Or is there something extra? So uh, uh, we we had this limit of 20 um, and then the New Horizons team um, paid attention to what we were saying, um, to their credit, and they took a bunch of data sort of specifically designed for this. Longer integrations, more, looking at better patches of sky, things like that. Yeah. Um, and they recently came out with a paper where the, uh, the measurement they got was about 20. Hmm. And so, um, interestingly, the, the interpretation is that we're missing half the light in the universe by just
0: counting galaxies alone. So so and and that's one of the implications, right was that we had been told that there was, say, the same number of galaxies in the observable universe as there are stars in the Milky Way, and then that number went way up, that a new estimate came out that Oh, it turns out there's 2 trillion uh, was it 2 trillion galaxies, like more than 100 to 400 billion galaxies. And this result shifts the number again, doesn't it? It, it, it certainly opens up the parameter space,
1: right? It it, it, it says that so there's an interesting paper uh, by Chris Consolise in about 2016, where um, basically, To boil it down, he pointed out that our knowledge of what faint galaxies, so dwarf galaxies, like our knowledge of cosmically speaking, how many of them there are and where they are and how they're distributed is extremely poor. We don't really know. So if you ask this question of how much light is being produced by the universe, he came up with this answer that there could be 30 times more light just based on what we have been able to measure from galaxies um, than the part we've seen. And I think based on other evidence, we can probably exclude 30. That's a pretty big factor. But things at the factor of two level, you know, now you're talking about interesting stuff right mm-hmm. now. Now, mm-hmm. maybe we're saying, hey, guys, we're
0: missing something here. So, so what implication does that have, say, on the on the way the universe came together in the earliest times? I mean, it feels like like this is how many Lego blocks you've got to work with.
1: So so one of the outstanding problems in cosmology um is called the missing baryon problem. And the missing baryon problem roughly goes that when we look at the amount of stuff that's in galaxies, meaning stars and black holes and gas and dust and all the stuff that makes up a galaxy. Um we're only kind of finding like 50% maybe a little less of of the total mass we know must be in baryons from other lines of evidence. Right. We're not even talking about dark matter, like just regular matter. Regular we're matter. We're missing we even, half of the matter. Yes. And it's yeah. staggering, right? We don't even know where that is. So, <laughs> so um, you know, recently there's been kind of discussion and people think that that a fair amount of it is actually in what's called the warm, hot intergalactic medium. And that's plasma that gets ejected out of galaxies, kind of lives diffusely around them. Um, but even then you still run into problems where you can't get to hundred percent. And so, you know, uh, our results and ours results and a bunch of different lines of evidence are, are saying, uh, Hey, maybe what's happening is some of the stuff is getting locked up into things like stars and gas and dust, but it's just really hard to see, you know, we're not looking in the right ways. And what we need to do is look a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, at these sort of different ways of doing it so that we can, we can kind of track that out. And, and I, 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 you know, I wouldn't want to place a bet on, on, you know, how much we're missing at this point. I think it's certainly some, I don't know if it's a factor of two. Um, but, uh, the point is this is necessary to sort of reconcile this whole picture and really
0: understand like, where is the stuff in the universe? Mm -hmm. Right. So let's shift gears then and actually talk about the proposal, the, the article that you posted on the conversation, what are you proposing? So, um, I hooked up uh,
1: via channels with a group at uh, APL, John Hopkins University's Applied Physics Lab. Um, they have picked up this torch that, as I said, was lit back in the 60s of, hey, we should send something outside of the solar system. And they're looking for science cases because one of the things is that sending something outside of the solar system takes time, right? It's not, you don't get there instantly. It takes decades- yeah, 10 years to get, there. to get to Pluto. At least, right? Yeah. And so, um, their their question is: Okay, we want to go to the pristine, you know, undisturbed galaxy. You know, how long would that take, and what would that look like? That was the kind of the kind of thing the the concept that they were studying. Um, and 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 they also asked: Okay, what kind of science would we be doing along the way? What's the point of doing this? Right? We don't just go to go. We want to ask actual questions. Yeah. And so there's a variety of questions related to, you know, how does the sun's heliosphere interact with the galaxy and what's the galaxy's material look like when it's not been filtered by the solar system? And what does the solar system look like in the first place and the Kuiper belt and all these cool things about what's going on in the outer parts of the solar system? Um, And they were familiar with the New Horizons work we've been doing and said, hey, um, what would you build if you could build something that would go on this thing? And so that was sort of the nascent thing and that's something we've been kind of working through with them over the past three five years um is if we were going to make a science case for a little instrument that we could piggyback along on this interstellar probe thing you know what would it look like and what would it be able to do um so that 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 piece in the conversation was um a little bit just trying to highlight to to the world that you know this is an obvious thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. It's pretty low hanging fruit in the the grand scheme of things. And, um, you know, whether 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 it's the APL thing, or some other thing, you know, we should we should be doing stuff like this. And we should be having those conversations because, you know, throwing more money at problems is not always the best way to solve them.
0: Right, right. (laughs) Uh, But but I, I, I definitely love this idea of of it being low hanging fruit, the fact that you're able to get the kind of a result from again, leftover data from New Horizons tells me that a dedicated telescope that's doing this job similar to the many observatories that have been built here. I mean, you think about even just in the infrared spectrum, there's been a, a ton of them, not to mention all of the ones that are looking at the cosmic microwave background, not to mention the, the, I guess, the near infrared work from some of the ground based observatories, like there's a, there's a ton of instrumentation that is built that's doing this job. So, so you know, what did your what was your recommendation to this to this team? What what kind of an instrument? Were you hoping that they would include on their on their interstellar explorer?
1: So um, the, the idea we sort of came up with, you know, the where the interesting science is, is more of a challenge. Um, so the kinds of things you can do with that, well, one, you would definitively answer this question. And I, I do mean definitively, because you can design a survey with the right instrument to go out and say, okay, what is the light from all the galaxies? And 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 can we reconcile that number with the integrated galactic light from, you know, doing point source surveys or, yeah. or you know, resolve surveys? Um, so that's one of the pieces of science. Another is sort of understanding the diffuse emission from the dust in the galaxy. It ends up that, especially in mid-infrared wavelengths, the Zodiacal light is so bright, you, it's it's almost hopeless. It's a really difficult measure. People have done it, but um, just getting outside of that, you get a lot more information. And then the, th- the third thing, and, and maybe even the most interesting is, if you're out there, you can you can be surveying the Kuiper Belt and not just looking for, you know, particular objects. That's That sounds a little bit difficult to me. But you can be looking for the dust emission. So the, the Kuiper Belt isn't just, you know, discrete objects, it's dust as well in that belt. And so uh, models say that if we go out there and we do the right measurement, we should be able to you know, see the dust in our solar system, just like people see dust in
0: exosolar systems, um, yeah. where planets are forming. That's cool. And so how big of an instrument, like, like, are we looking at a Hubble space telescope? Or are we looking at a, you know, how big?
1: So, so the, the baseline, um, that we'd been kind of looking at was based on cube that we'd been looking at, uh, building. And so, so the, the, uh, the the short way to say it is it's the size of a cereal box perhaps a large cereal box maybe a small suitcase wow
0: yeah that's that's tiny and how big would its aperture be so the aperture uh would be it'd be a it'd
1: be a 10 centimeter aperture but it's the you know the optic the telescope design is a little bit complicated because you could go a bunch of different ways but the way we were kind of baselining anyway the upshot is it would be a
0: seven centimeter telescope that's mental that's so tiny. Like, <laughs> yes. again, like that's way smaller than Lori, as you said. So absolutely, it's just that it, it would have to be configured with the right instruments to, and the right focal length, etc., to do this, this specific job. That seems, that seems easy. Like that seems like a no brainer to, to clamp one of these onto the outside of Europa Clipper or, or, Titan Dragonfly or or what have you like, it seems like you could send one of those along. Um, and so you in your article are proposing, like a standalone mission to put a telescope out there or, or a parasite.
1: Well, it's like you said, right? I, that any mission, it, it's I don't know, I always have this picture of like some guy hitchhiking and, and waiting for a car, right? Like, yeah, any car going in the right direction. I'm going to Memphis. You know what I mean? So, so anything that's going to be out of the solar system, yeah. as long as they had space for a 10 kilogram, you know, small suitcase size thing um, to slap on the side, we could go. And, and and, uh, you know, I'm not the first one to propose this. I was part of a proposal team led by Jamie Bach, you know, 10, 15 years ago called Zebra, where, you know, they they almost got out to Saturn, or mm-hmm. we almost got out to Saturn. Um, And it, you know, it fell apart at last minute for reasons. But, but the point is that, This is, it's like you said, this isn't
0: a hard thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Is it, is it better to do a smaller instrument farther out? Is it better to make a bigger instrument closer in? What is the sweet spot of, of size and distance from the sun? So I think, uh,
1: the science starts getting interesting about 10 AU. So about the distance of Saturn, um, closer in. So going to Jupiter, um, there's certainly stuff you could do, but I think it's a little bit more, uh, marginal in terms of improvements and, 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 and what we would, what we would really learn. Um, so, you know, going out to Saturn, going out to, to, to Uranus, Neptune, um, I think that the, uh, uh, how far out you go, um, further is better. Uh, uh, I, I think there's, if you're going to try to sort of, for example, map the Kuiper belt, you, you need to, Kind of transit the Kuiper Belt, so you're going to be going out to you know 100 AU or whatever mm-hmm. it ends up being. Um, but you know you don't necessarily need to do that. There's all kinds of science that 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 you don't need to go that far out to do. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I think I think ultimately, uh, you know, the, the other part of this, I guess, is 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 you know, it comes up sometimes. What's the speed? How fast do you need to get out there? And and we could be taking a slow boat. We really don't mind um the 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 issue for us is getting past that magical 10 au and once you're out there you know uh we could be doing our science for a couple years get our answer and then that's it turn us off or or not or whatever ends up happening Mm -hmm. but the point is once you're out there you do it and you're done
0: yeah and so so would a i mean would a an orbit out there, like, say, get out to and circularize your orbit around the area of Saturn or would it make more sense to just go on a either incredibly highly elliptical orbit or even an escape trajectory out of the solar system, and then just keep getting farther and farther and, and getting a clear and clear view as you go with slower and slower communication speed. I you
1: make a good point about communication speed, I think I think from the point of view of like science and observations, it, it's 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 all good, actually, you know, once you're out there, you're, you're out there and, and, and you're happy. Um, you're absolutely right. that data rate becomes a problem. And uh, it gets more and more expensive. Um, there's ways to sort of mitigate that, like onboard processing and things like that. Um, the, the upshot, though, I guess, is we always tell the interstellar probe team that once we, once we get to about 20 or 30 AU, we're done with the cosmology stuff. You could turn us off. Hmm. And if you want to do the Kuiper belt stuff, then we probably want to go out to hundred. And, and, you know, in that particular instance, that would take 10 years. Um, but this isn't something that would require 50 years to get the data, right? You'd get the data pretty quick and be able to turn it around. You'd
0: be answering science questions, you know, right out the door, practically. Would you, you think- be done? Like, like, would you reach this point where you're pretty much, you? you said you've answered the question. Would you just be like, okay, We have our answer. Here's the exact brightness of the universe and this is how many galaxies there probably are. And we can't really gain anything more useful. It's kind of like, like we've reached the limits of what cosmic microwave background instruments can do. There's no additional information that can be gleaned from the CMB at this point.
1: Right. So, so I think you hit that limit. Yes, I think you hit that limit. It depends on how much integration time and where you're looking and things like that. But you hit that limit in a couple of years. This isn't a, this isn't a, at least by modern standards, this isn't a terribly subtle signal, right? We're we're doing these kind of studies from sounding rockets. We're in space for five minutes. Um, you give me a year, I I can do stuff pretty definitively.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I'd like to sort of shift gears now and to sort of talk about what answers lie in the infrared universe. I mean, obviously, so many of us are on tenterhooks with the potential launch of James Webb in 12 days, 14 days from now. And it Mm -hmm. will launch two weeks. Absolutely. No question. There's not gonna be a single problem. It's going. Um, (laughs) what you know, now suddenly arrives the the biggest best infrared instrument ever designed and built and launched to space by humanity. How does this play a role in the kinds of research that you're doing? Are you going to be able to take advantage of James Webb data? So I don't do
1: uh, James Webb uh, science myself. Um, I come from a, a, you know, slightly different Paradigm or whatever the word is, Um, the insights though that James Webb will give us about things like reionization and dwarf galaxies and really understanding you know in in minute detail the the um, these smaller objects I think is going to be very interesting and it's going to answer obviously a lot of questions about. what are these objects like and what are the physical parameters and you know what what is the escape fraction of Lyman alpha and all these kind of questions that we're interested in knowing because they feed into our physical models the thing though i think that we need to remember is that these things are complementary that is james webb is really good at telling you in detail about one or a handful of objects Right? Mm -hmm. That's what it does. And it's going to be really good at that. It doesn't necessarily tell you about global properties all that well, because you just can't do a big enough survey where you can, you can ask your questions about your detailed little pinprick and get enough data back. Now, to a certain extent, that's yes and no, right? Like you, you, there are big surveys with JBOST answers will be gotten. You know, I, I, I think that that's all fine. Um, So I I guess a point of comparison is something like ALMA, where ALMA is great, but it still struggles to do very large statistical samples. We're at the other end with this, right? Using this diffuse light counting up all the photons from galaxies and whatnot, that's not about a single object, that's about all of the objects. And so you're kind of on different ends of the teeter-totter. And I think you need both to get an actual full picture of what's going on. You need to understand both what are the average global properties and then What are the constituents that make up those global properties that you need both ends of that? Otherwise, you know, you 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 might get blinkered,
0: right? But but then isn't there a a nice halfway point where you're trying to map out the regions across the universe, similar to the way you're doing with the cosmic microwave background? Wouldn't you be wanting to do those brightness maps with more resolution to try and see if there's varying levels of brightness in different regions? clustered around galaxies etc cetera, etc cetera. sure but that's where reality gets gets in where
1: sending something that could do that to the outer solar system isn't going to happen and 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 again the mm, okay. issue is all right not the angular resolution the issue is the
0: local dust that's so darn bright that's killing us but so okay so All right, so let's leave the realm of the practical and the one where you can make these perfectly reasonable requests of mission planners and like, sure, we can we can tack on your tiny little cereal box on the side of our $4 billion spacecraft. Um, What if we sent a Herschel, a Hubble out farther, farther, farther away from Earth? What could be done? So, that we couldn't do from earth right
1: so the the um the thing you gain in doing that is photon background and what that basically boils down to is noise you know it's it's the it's the random noise and the pixels in your image more or less if you I, i'm i'm doing your thought experiment of like let's let's let Hubble drift out of the solar system yeah yeah put it on an escape
0: velocity. James Webb is on an escape trajectory yeah Hubble yeah yeah Herschel and
1: and in fact Spitzer is a great example Spitzer Spitzer is is you know half an AU or whatever it is away from us right now because it's slowly it's in our orbit but it's slowly drifting away from earth and and as a result it's been able to actually understand the zodiacal light the dust in the solar system in a completely unique way that we can't get from earth because it's kind of away from our vantage point and you need that
0: Yeah. yeah and also turned off yeah. Okay. <laughs> Small tier. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do miss Spitzer anyway. Um, but imagine the, Spitzer instead of being turned off was refueled and sent on this glorious yeah, journey yeah. out so, of the inner solar system.
1: So, so what you gain is you, you, you gain this, this, I always compare it to um, uh, a foggy night and you're under a street lamp and the street lamp lights up the fog, right? And it lights up the fog in such a way that when you look at the building across the, the street or the quad or whatever with its lights off, you can't see it. It's really hard to make out, right? Because the problem is that there's so much stuff that's right in front of you that's obscuring your vision and kind of not letting you see the background stuff. So this, this this idea of like letting it drift out, what what are you doing? Well, you're getting away from the street lamp, which is the sun in this in this analogy, right? And once you do that, you can imagine two things. One is I'm gonna be able to see the other thing that's dark across the street a lot better because I don't have all that obscuring stuff in my face. The other thing is I can turn around and look back at the street lamp and understand that environment a lot Mm -hmm. better because now I'm out of it, right? So I think it's both. And I mean, a more physics-based answer would be, it's this noise issue, right? So the noise in things like Hubble and Spitzer, um, if you just ask about the pixels that are sort of in the image, um, as, unless you're looking at something bright, that's set by the zodiacal light. So mm-hmm. one way to you know immediately make your detector better and your uh, measurements better is is to um, reduce that noise by reducing the number of photons that are coming from the zodiacal light thing. and you'll you'll intrinsically get better performance, you know, lower noise measurements of faint stuff that you're interested in just by getting away from
0: it. So like, imagine like the most, one of the most exciting pictures ever taken by Hubble is the ultra deep field and the various versions of the ultra deep field. So if they turned Hubble, if they flew Hubble out to beyond the zodiacal light and redid the deep field, the ultra deep field and, and stared at one spot in space for dozens, hundreds of hours, would it be a remarkably different image? I don't know that it would be a remarkably different image. You know, one way
1: one way to uh, win this game is to just stare for a long time because you beat down noise that way as well. Um, I guess I guess what right. I would say is that in an equivalent amount of time, the the things you would be able to see,
0: you know, would be a lot fainter. So you would place. be able to use Hubble more like people could have less time on Hubble because they can get their answers with a with a shorter amount of time. Exactly, right. I see. I see. And so there would be some some balance where the cost and expense of putting a giant telescope far away from Earth is matched with the savings the time savings to let more astronomers perform their observations. But at the very limit, I would expect that there would be some observations that just can't be made in around the streetlight. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And in
1: fact, this this idea was proposed in the late '80s, I guess, by John Mather, who's the sure. Nobel Prize winner for CMB stuff, and 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 Chas Baikman, who said, "Hey, let's build Spitzer and and try and get it out, you know, give it a trajectory outbound and and see what we can oh, do." And, and
0: that would be amazing.
1: Yeah, it never came to fruition, but you know, it's it's again a. a example of the long heritage of this idea you know
0: yeah now this might not be in your wheelhouse so feel free to to dodge the question if you need to um but you know we've recently learned that the diacolite is largely coming from mars is a is a fairly fairly recent discovery that that the 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 solar wind the the, material getting kicked off of Mars is entering this big orbit and contributing a significant amount of this of this dust, which I guess tells us something about the solar system about the by just by looking at the dust, it tells us something about the 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 constituents of the of the solar system. And as you said, you could turn your telescope back look at the look at the dust and learn some stuff about the solar system. Could that be used to answer questions about other solar systems as well?
1: So that result you're referring is to is interesting i think i would characterize it as being somewhat contentious sure yeah um (laughs) yeah uh other people you ask uh would perhaps say that in fact the zodiacal light is more due to um comets for example as one source um and in fact what we might be learning when we look at zodiacal light is actually what's going on in places like the oort cloud very far away or or the kuiper belt places like that um so to me this points to this whole field as being a very actually interesting lively place for debate it's this this particular topic has been around for many many years um you know so brian may the guitarist for queen famous for having gone to university to do his phd studied zodiacal light actually Mm -hmm. Um, got famous in a band, ended up quitting and going and doing that. And then he came back after, I forget what it was, 40 years or so. Yeah, He finished up his PhD on the, on the data that he took in 1970. So holy smokes (laughs) in this field, you can walk away and 40 years later, still get a PhD based on your 40 year old data. That's crazy,
0: right? (laughs) It's impressive.
1: So the, the, the point is, I, I think that this is a very lively field of, of, you know, where, where is the dust coming from? What's the composition? How does it get there? How long does it stay there once it's there? And 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 absolutely, yes. Uh, you know, the, the questions that the exoplanetary community are trying to answer uh, about um, habitability, right? Like, how do you get water, ice into planets and stuff like that? Totally relevant. The, the, we don't understand the structure of our dust disk at all. Mm-hmm. So you're going to turn around and tell me like, we understand how transport works in these exosystems? You know, maybe, but I think we need the 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 local analog to be better understood so we can really interpret what we're seeing. I think there's a missing link there that that you know I and others have started kind of hopping up and down about saying like there's something here guys, yeah so
0: yeah and i and I wonder if sensing the zodiacal light or the you know the dust around another star system is a nice in between a um uh oh, I forget the term but like a secondary. Confirmation of certain characteristics of the planet, like if you see yep. a certain composition of these of the dust around a star, that tells you perhaps ha- a more likelihood that there could be uh, habitable planets close up to the star. That there's a certain amount of Kuiper belt objects and or cloud objects and comets and and or or a Mars. You know, like I wonder what would it take to be able to make those kinds of observations.
1: Yeah, it would take something pretty advanced. But wouldn't that be cool, right, to 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 see a an exoplanet that's bleeding material and see that material in the dust disk and say, "Holy smokes, there's yeah. this whole interface that's that's happening." I you know, that that's that's a very cool thought. Um and I I think maybe we'll get there in the next couple of decades. Um but that's that's yeah. I well, think that's a future thing.
0: One of the discoveries that was made fairly recently was by the uh the Norwegian the Lofar team. And they're using an instrument on board, I think it was a Chinese spacecraft, and they were able to make detections of the magnetospheres. Essentially, they detected radio emissions coming from stars because they were coming from the magnetospheres of the planets orbiting those stars. And so you get this twofer, you discover planets, and also. You discover magnetospheres, and, right? Right, and and it feels like a similar possibility that as you learn more about the, the the characteristics of our zodiacal light, you then can discover similar. You're looking for other planets, other star systems that will have a similar fingerprint that may say, okay, then the kinds of things that we have here in the solar system that we think are important for life, we see them there as well. There,
1: you're you're you're. I like the way you're thinking. You're on some cutting edge stuff there. I think actually,
0: mm-hmm. yep, yeah. There you go. All right. So then, well, then your next conversation article will be recommending the uh, extrasolar planet dust hunter. Well, I y- y- y-
1: you're laughing, and I, I I shouldn't say too much because we're preparing the proposal right now. We are actually. <laughs> oh, there you go. Then all right. Well, we're actually we're actually proposing you know a zodiacal light. Um, Measurement mm-hmm. that interesting. would, that it's very tied to like, let's understand our dust clouds so we can interpret these measurements better. That's,
0: that's really, that's out. really interesting. So we've got a few minutes left. So I want to go back to a conversation we had re- really early on, which is, you know, dark matter and your thinking about axions. You went straight for axions. So do you think that axions? are the best explanation of dark matter? Or do you have one that you like better?
1: Well, that's a good question. So, so the short answer, yes, I'm an axion fanboy at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the, the uh, standard sort of supersymmetric particle cold dark matter wimp sort of picture that we've had for the past uh, 30, 40 years um is starting to show holes it's getting a little ragged i think lux is going to come along and 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 really well we'll see maybe there'll be a nobel prize there but so sorry what's lux? what we will I will miss that f- oh it's um it's an instrument down um a mine i forget what their interaction uh 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 material is but it's one of these things where um you wait for a dark matter particle to come along and transmute a neutron and then turn right. the chemical into a different kind of chemical. And it's a very sensitive way
0: to right. – uh, But like a tabletop uh, measurement-ish, measurement of measurement of of dark matter.
1: As yeah, to, yeah, right. And now I'm thinking about it. Gosh, Lux, I'm trying to remember if it's a cryogenic one or, or right. one of these chemicals. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The yeah. point is that that, that that magical dark matter particle comes along, transmutes your thing, or puts some energy into it, and you can see that. And so people have been looking for this down mines for a long time. And, and what's happening is they're reaching sensitivities with these instruments that um, the neutrino background from the sun, the fact the sun makes a lot of neutrinos and those are eventually going to do the same thing as dark matter, you know, from the point of view of their instruments um, you're, we're reaching those backgrounds. Hmm. So in in fact, very soon, next five years, uh, we're going to hit that background. And all of a sudden it becomes a whole different game because now you got to figure out how you're going to get rid of these solar neutrinos. And that's hard. That's capital H hard. Right. So my read is that the parameter space for this sort of classic WIMP dark matter is getting getting increasingly excluded, which isn't to say it's not WIMPs. It could still be. It's 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 one of those things. But I think it's going to get to be a lot harder um, in the next little while. So axioms. Axions are a particle that's hypothesized to be produced in the early universe in great quantities in the standard model of physics. See, this is not a new kind of physics particle. This is a, a hypothesis, sort of like the neutrino used to be before we detected them, that that these particles sort of get made um, in great abundance, associated with a symmetry breaking in the early universe, usual Big Bang stuff. So, what's the point? The point is that. For a certain range of masses that are calculable, it's three or four decades in mass um, around a milli-electron volt or micro-electron volt. Um, axions could be astrophysical dark matter. They have the right properties mm-hmm. um, in terms of density and sort of total mass. So, so you have dark matter to sort of, you know, to make up the energy density we think mm-hmm. is in dark matter and all those good things. Um, so axions, you don't need new physics and really the question just boils down to how massive are they and so people have realized this and we're seeing a, a big flurry of activity in in that community um to try and do measurements where they can look at that particular mass range and very you know sensitively and say whether there's an axiom there um, or not and if there is you know that that's starting to look very promising as maybe that's what dark matter is
0: That's really interesting. It's, it's interesting to see. I mean, I love the search. And I love, like, I watch the search for dark matter, in the same way that I think people watch a sports ball game (laughs) that they really enjoy that that over time, you learn who the players are, and you learn what the history is, and you learn what the the constraints are, and what they're trying to do, and who's up this week, and who's up that week and and what are all the biases, and so on and so forth, as the entire scientific community works its way towards an answer, or at least shutting down bad answers that don't hold up under under scrutiny. And it's absolutely fascinating. It's absolutely wonderful. It's, it's so weird to me, like, there was just like, I just on Twitter, someone was accusing the scientific community of of trying to make tons of money and get bogus funding so that they can keep making up stuff like dark matter and dark energy and the Big Bang and so on. And and i just feel sad. Because if they knew how exciting and how interesting and how diligent scientists are working to try to gather evidence towards a conclusion and how rigorous the scientific process is and how unforgiving it is. If you do try to, to scam your way forward, uh, they would be amazed and impressed and inspired and instead are, are, you know, just grumpy and, and cynical, and it makes me sad. But you know, it's not for them. Yeah, I, I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael, we've reached the end of our hour. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I think you've got a no-brainer here. Um, so uh, I look forward to the uh, to the Cosmic Brightness Telescope going with uh, some other mission in the near future and someone going out and repairing Spitzer and sending it on one last final journey. It sounds like a science fiction story. I love it. Um, <laughs> but uh, But if people want to track your work, see what you're working on, where should they go?
1: Oh, uh you can search for my name in Google and the first hit is my research website. Yep.
0: Um it'll be served by RIT. Wonderful. Well, Michael, it was great to talk to you again. I appreciate uh you coming back and explaining all of this work and I look forward to uh whatever comes next. Uh,
1: thank you, Fraser. I, right. It was always a pleasure. I appreciate it.
0: All right. Take care. All right. Bye.